Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very pleased to be joined this week by Amrit Luwalia, the managing editor of The Evolution. It's an online newspaper that's been around since 2012, focusing on continuing education, the adult learner, and how higher education is ready for evolution. Amrit, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. Yeah, so the pleasure is all ours. We'd love to hear more about what the, the evolution is, what you've been focused on since it launched almost 10 years ago. It's been an interesting time, I think, to be focused on what you've been focused on. But, but to begin with, we'd love to hear more about uh, what got you started in the, the, the higher ed space and uh, what was the origin story for uh, the evolution and for your role as managing editor of this online newspaper? Yeah, so my own interest in education is really driven by my mom. My mom got her bachelor's degree in chemistry at the University of Bombay before she you know, married my father and, and joined him in Ottawa, Canada, where he was pursuing his doctorate at the University of Ottawa. Now, my mom, after she finished her bachelor's degree, she joined British Airways as a stewardess because she wanted to see the world mm-hmm. and traveled all over the world, did amazing things. So when she came to Canada, she had a bachelor's degree in chemistry. She'd done a pretty complex and challenging job as a young adult before landing in Canada and saying, what, what's there for me? Yeah. And she went to Employment Canada office, which is uh, basically a, you know, a job center, and said, here's my background, here's my education, here's my experience. What should I do? And they looked at it and said, cool, you were a stewardess, you can be a waitress. Mm. And for her, that was unacceptable. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, she decided to pursue her accountancy and get a, a credential as an accountant. And that was what I grew up with, was my yeah. mom constantly pursuing ongoing education and lifelong learning as a way to improve her life, improve yeah. the life for our family. She wound up basically rising through the ranks at Canada's version of the IRS. She became a mm-hmm. very professional, very talented corporate accountant. Mm-hmm. And as uh, she started to reach the end of her career in the public sector, she decided, I've always had a passion for photography. So she enrolled at the local community college and started pursuing credentials to become a certified wedding photographer. Awesome. And yeah, when I think about the adult learner and when I think about someone who's really constantly engaged in lifelong learning mm-hmm. as a way to transform their lives and as a way to support their family, yeah. I think about my mom. Yeah. So in terms of my own entry in, into the higher education space, it's, it's all about her. It's about mm-hmm. trying to make people who are trying to do what she did, trying to make life a little easier on them. And, yeah. and the way that I get to do that is really interesting. As you mentioned, I'm, I'm the managing editor of The Evolution. We're an online newspaper focused on non-traditional higher education. What we do is publish articles and interviews by college and university leaders across North America talking about sort of how higher education as an industry is changing and how institutions are adapting to keep pace with that change. And broadly speaking, our focus is on demographic shifts. We were founded by a company called Destiny Solutions. Basically, the CEO of the company at the time felt that you had some really interesting ideas coming out of the continuing ed space or CE space. Yeah. He saw all these folks having really interesting conversations about what higher ed was and what it could be, but they were really contained to that one band of individuals who ran continuing ed departments. We launched the evolution as a way to create more visibility on those ideas. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, we launched in 2012. Mm-hmm. And as your listeners who are over 10 years old will remember, 2012 was when the recovery started after the Great Recession of 2008. 
Right. So as folks started going back to work and dropping out of, of their degree programs that they enrolled in because they were out of work, all of a sudden the artificial inflation that had kept colleges and universities sustainable during a period of significant revenue cuts mm-hmm. really caught up with them. So here we were running this online newspaper that we felt was by continuing ad leaders, largely for continuing ad leaders. And one day we decided to look at our subscriber numbers, which were spiking, and realized that most of them were presidents and provosts and CFOs and Mm -hmm. folks who ran the main campus of the institution. Because here we were publishing articles about how to be entrepreneurial and innovative in higher ed. And that's when we realized that, oh, Things are actually changing. Continuing yeah. ed might be onto something here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it ties very closely to the idea of lifelong learning and mm-hmm. extending beyond the the sort of traditional model, the Animal House. The <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I immediately go to Belushi, but that, that's where my head is at. But the traditional four-year bachelor yes. degree, residential, undergraduate experience, which is true of many middle-class eighteen-year-olds. Mm -hmm. But it's also not true of the majority of folks who are pursuing some kind of uh, credential, that some kind of post post high school credential. And that's really been something we were talking about this a bit when we were prepping. Looking at the non-traditional learner is very much part of the mission of the the evolution. And now, in many ways, in light of the pandemic, everyone is becoming non-traditional in some way, shape, or form. So I'd love to hear more from you on Mm -hmm. the whole concept of uh, quote-unquote non-traditional learner because it's increasingly becoming the majority or a plurality. Reminds me very much of some of the conversations of diversity and demographics, which you were talking Mm -hmm. about earlier, where increasingly we're just collections of pluralities and thinking about the full span of the learner's lifetime I think of the example of your mom, which was really a great way to bring us into the conversation. How do you flesh out what a non-traditional learner is nowadays? Sure. By the strict definition, a non-traditional learner meets the one of six criteria as established by the federal government. They are over the age of 25, or they have dependents, or they took a break between high school and university, or they work part-time, or they attend part-time, or I believe it's either they on, they're online learners or they transferred. Got it. Yeah. Six, six criteria to define what a non-traditional learner is. Yeah. In 2002, mm-hmm. we know that 74% of students enrolled in degree programs were non-traditional. Right. Mm-hmm. In wow. 2002, we knew yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So when we talk about the rise of the non-traditional learner, this is not a new thing. Mm-hmm. What is a new thing is the financial imperative to, to give a care. If all of a sudden we can't stick our heads in the sand as an industry and say, regardless of who's on campus, we offer a very particular experience in a very particular way for the group that we assume are the people on our campus. Mm -hmm. And that's where you're starting to see a lot of this transformation and change around how colleges and universities operate. Because as with any business, there has to be a reckoning of who, who actually requires access to the products and services that we offer. Right. And, and I think we, we need to be very realistic about that. Now, that's not to say that the customer is always right. It's not to say that they should be able to come in and have a subpar educational experience, because if we're getting to the reality of what people are looking for from a post-secondary experience, yes, it's a piece of paper, but more important than that, it's some kind of credential or certification that 
helps them achieve a specific outcome, which for the most part is a labor market outcome, a job, Mm -hmm. whether that's a first job, a progression, an advancement, a promotion. These are the things that folks pursue. And these are the the, the post-secondary experience is a tool to accomplish that. So they're looking for a rigorous learning experience, but what they're not interested in is jumping through 50 hoops Mm -hmm. to be able to get to that. What they're not interested in is enrolling in a full two or four year degree program in order to get five or six pieces of knowledge that they really need in order to execute on that outcome. So when we think about how is higher education evolving, what happens when we consider the student as a customer, Mm -hmm. it's how do we start to look at the array of expertise and the array of courses and knowledge that we, the institution, are able to share Mm -hmm. and create more access points to those pieces of information? How do we create more opportunities for just-in-time learning? How do we create credentials that are more representative of the outcomes that individuals want to achieve? Mm -hmm. And if we get really real about that, right, then we're starting to go down the path of student centricity. Then we're starting to recognize that if individuals behave like customers, we need to treat them with respect and empathy. We need to understand what they're looking for in a post-secondary experience. We need to understand that a 45-year-old who's juggling school, work, kids, potentially parents, doesn't really have time for the hoopla that can often come with enrolling in a course or a program. They need flexibility. They need clarity in terms of what a particular course or program requires from We need to treat them with respect and empathy. Yeah. And, and that really changes how every aspect of the institution operates. But it yeah. comes back to who is the student and what are they looking for? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. It reminds me of I was catching some of the ASU GSV uh, conference, which is the big ed tech conference has been going on the last uh, few weeks. We're recording this in early October. And one of the lectures, I think it was Scott Galloway was talking about higher ed focuses on 17 million undergrads each year, traditionally, roughly 17 million who are that sort of idealized version of the undergraduate experience, rather than focusing on the 180 million workers who are out there and who are in need of upskilling. But I think it's similar to what you're describing. It's also, even if the unit economics come down, like you get less per head because they're doing micro-credentialing or it's a smaller engagement or they get it through their employer, the learning opportunities in aggregate and the size of the addressable market, if you go from 17 million undergrads to 180 workers, higher ed is barely making a dent in terms of upskilling and educating the the entire labor workforce in the U.S., not to mention the global labor workforce. I think it's those orders of magnitude that frequently folks forget about. And it does also remind me of the work of Todd Rose. He wrote a book called The End of Average, which basically says when you start thinking about large populations as their average or as their sort of idealized exemplar, you wind up fitting little or no one because in, in reality, no one is going to check all the traditional boxes in your six criteria. It's a very small segment. They are out there. They will be served because they're generally going to be paying a premium and they come from a background that gives them uh, a path through these elite universities and this idealized experience. But it's more important really to focus on everyone else. And there's also more of a business opportunity to focus on the everyone else. So I actually want to take us one step back. Because Please. I, this tends to happen when we talk about non-traditional higher ed, right? Yeah, is yeah. 
is we start really thinking about the scale of it. We really start thinking about the numbers of it. And then we start to run. Yeah. Right? We really start to say, I was getting, I was getting moly. fired up. I'm look, right. I, look I was, at all I the was, people. Look at yeah. the size of the market. Yeah. Look at the yeah. opportunity. Look at the revenue. Yeah. No. Oh. Because we are all products. Now, all of us having these conversations are all products of a traditional education experience. Yeah. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, what right. I am saying is there are 7,000 accredited colleges and universities in the United States. Yeah. All 7,000 should not be focused exclusively on traditional learners, yeah. which is broadly speaking where we're at right now. Mm -hmm. I would say one of the driving factors behind the growth of ASU Online, Southern New Hampshire, Western Governors, yeah. uh, Excelsior in their day, mm -hmm. is that University of Phoenix, is that they realized that, holy moly, there are way more yeah. people out here than we're serving. Now, there is a place, a critical place, for a traditional post-secondary experience. There is a critical place for the degree program. And I am not suggesting we get rid of it. Mm -hmm. But what I am saying is that, imagine how much more we could do if we were more realistic about creating genuine access. For sure. And I think that's the opportunity. It's not to say, let's unbundle everything and, and the opportunity exists for those who want it. Right. It's about saying, yes, and. Mm -hmm. Right? And that's what really excites me about the higher education space as it is today and in terms of where I think it's going. Right. Is that we have an opportunity to start creating very conscious and proactive lifelong learning environments. Yeah. And that's not, those of us in continuing education are becoming very familiar with the idea of a 60-year curriculum. And it's an idea that I think is starting to progress outside of this little box. But I want everybody to Google 60-year curriculum. And I want every, all of your listeners, please learn about it. Give it a read. We have an entire page on the evolution. It's evolution with three L's.com slash 60YC. Okay. Educate yourself about this concept. Mm -hmm. Because it's about taking the concept of lifelong learning and activating it. Right. It's about reframing the role of the institution from being a single point of entry at the start of an individual's career mm -hmm. to which they never return to a constant presence in their life right. from the age of 10 or 11 through retirement. Right. Now, if we get very real about that, again, there's a critical place and role for the degree. Mm -hmm. But what we're saying is that there's opportunities to do for the institution to serve that individual before they enroll in their degree program. Active opportunities for the institution to engage that individual upon graduation. Right yeah. now, if we think about alumni engagement, it is yeah. very much focused around give us money. Totally. Yeah. Hey, come to a football game, give us money. Right. Every mm -hmm. five years on the button. I, I know when it's been five years since I've graduated because I will start getting emails from my alma mater. And I everybody has this experience. But imagine if instead of a what would you call it penannual email yeah offering you the opportunity to spend more money on your institution imagine if the institution every year or two checked in with you to see how your career was going right and offered you the opportunity to enroll in a skill development course mm -hmm, mm -hmm. imagine if the university or college was a constant act proactive presence in your life that supported your career development yep now first of all i would be way more willing to to Donate to, get, to donate to give you money. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But secondly, I would very likely be paying for continued engagement. Yep. I and, and the, the thing is, that's I think where colleges and universities need to start thinking more business because Amazon isn't happy with someone buying a set of rubber bands and then never returning to the web page. I have I get 
emails from places that I've bought shoes from, sure. places that I've bought any kitchen items, any mm -hmm. number of things. Right. Why are we as institutions not comfortable with the idea that people are lifelong learners mm -hmm. and we, the institution, are providers of learning products? Yeah, no, I'm with you. And, and just my point, I think, as I was getting excited, uh, <laughs> started running into this, is that for some higher ed institutions, they have the benefit of these large endowments and mm -hmm. the resilience of a brand and an elite status, that's a very small slice yes. of higher education. Yes. The challenge is more as you move down below mm -hmm. the top quartile, below the top half, and you start getting, mm -hmm. getting into the bottom half of higher education institutions. I spent a lot of time talking about small private liberal arts yeah. colleges lately. If they aren't flexible, in their thinking, yeah. they don't really have the, the privilege of continuing to support that idealized undergraduate experience because those students are, are, are disappearing very quickly, either because they can't afford it, they're questioning the return on that spend for that particular degree. So I think there is a, a level of existential threat that we haven't really seen before for folks who are in forward thinking. And then this does feel like an obvious evolution, I'm going to keep saying it uh, with, <laughs> with three L's, it's, a, it's an obvious evolution of the thinking, I think, to extend beyond your traditional overfitting to this small yeah. segment to then say, who else is out there? How else might we engage them? And then I imagine online learning is a huge part of what yeah. you're tracking as well. Can you talk a little more about how online learning? Sure. Works? Yeah. So online learning is really interesting. Online learning is an opportunity to make flexibility or reality for most students. Now, I want to be very clear about the difference between online learning and what has been in the news for the last six months. Now, what happened in March was an immediate, somewhat panicked response yeah. to an unprecedented event. Yeah, we call it emergency remote teaching a lot. Here. Emergency remote teaching. That's yeah. exactly the term. It's remote learning. Yeah. It's not online learning makes the most of the available technologies to maximize engagement between learners and faculty mm -hmm. and between learners and other learners. Yeah. That is good online learning. Yeah. Now, what we did was remote education. Take this lecture, slap it on yeah. Zoom. We need to bridge this gap. Yeah. So good online learning has been increasingly in demand for, I want to say, 10 to 15, maybe 20 years. Yeah. And what's interesting about the pandemic is that we're seeing all these things happen. And I think a lot of folks in the traditional education space were really looking at this and saying, oh my God, can you believe all these things that are happening? And I think anyone in the continuing ed space would say, yeah, because these are all the things that we've been working towards for right. 20 years. Right. We, the institution in this environment, need to be able to deliver course offerings and services right. in a way that's flexible and meets the needs of learners where they are at a point mm -hmm. in time. Yeah. This is a long-term trend. It was simply accelerated exactly. in, in the last few months. Right. Now, right. how we reacted to that was, first of all, incredible. And right. huge kudos to every yeah. single person in the post-secondary space, because I think if you asked anyone on any campus, how long would it take for us to move 100% of our courses online? Yeah decades. Guess what? We did it in two weeks. Right, right. You know, it, and imagine what higher ed could do with that kind of power, mm -hmm. right? Imagine, yeah. what's, imagine what's possible, but we're not, that's another conversation for another day. Well, yeah. And it's, but, but just to build on that though, too, like if with, mm -hmm. with thoughtful design and with 
yes. like a six to 18 month production cycle to mm-hmm. actually get something genuinely transformative in market. But the other thing, as you were talking about all this, that definitely comes to mind, I've seen other people write about this as well, is uh, in software development, there's the concept of agile versus yeah. waterfall, where waterfall is you design some you have really voluminous specifications, you detail everything, and it's typically a very long-term uh, build cycle. Agile, when you go much smaller and iterative, and you're always measuring, am I delivering the value to my customer in the way that I envisioned, or am I learning something new in which there are smaller pivots? It almost seems yeah. like continuing ed has been, by virtue of who you're serving and how you're serving them, has been more agile by nature. And now like a lot of that yeah. agility is being forced on the more traditional uh, yeah. higher ed. So continuing ed has historically been cost recovery, right? Mm-hmm. At, at most institutions, the continuing ed division is, is cost recovery at best. Mm-hmm. So they haven't had the benefit of sort of the institutional subsidy to allow them to do whatever they want. Right. Their role is to at minimum break even. Mm-hmm. So there has not been the luxury of being faculty centric, we'll call it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. around what's being offered and how and to whom. Yeah. Right? Right. Continuing ed divisions have always had to be market responsive and mm-hmm. flexible to the demands and needs of the market. Yeah. They've also had to be very realistic about who their market could be. And part and parcel of this is if you think about the secondary role of a continuing ed division, it's outreach and engagement. I was just so there's this there's a socioeconomic development mission. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That you have to be able to provide affordable outcomes oriented offerings to folks who need them in basically any opportunity. There's, there's a concept it was uh, shared with me at least by a fellow who, who retired from Oregon State University named Dave King, who came up with this idea of spectrum of access, which again, mm. go to evolution.com, search spectrum of access. Okay. It's the idea of what are the entry points that people are trying to engage with the institution at? And how are we the institution geared to serve them at those entry points? So basically, it's as you go further along the spectrum, the course offerings become more rigorous and time demanding and expensive. And as you go towards the front of the spectrum, they're more open access. You're talking community workshops and things Mm -hmm. like that. Then you have your modules, your single credit courses, your continuing ed in the the middle. And then on the other end, you have degree programs. And most of the knowledge and expertise of the institution is gated into these extremely expensive, extremely... Mm pathway oriented, I guess you could call them degree programs. And, and what Dave was saying is imagine if you unbundled that to create points of entry that were responsive to the learners in your potential demographic to allow them to engage with the institution in a way that made sense for them for the outcome they were trying to achieve and then stacked into something that was more significant or more robust over time. Mm -hmm. So that individual can engage with the institution in a way that makes sense to them, Mm -hmm. but allows, allows them the sort of, financial flexibility if they need it, the outcomes flexibility if they're looking for it, to, to pursue their learning in a way that makes sense for them at points in time. Yeah, that's fascinating too, because it does embed the higher education institution more in the community mm-hmm. as well, which is something that you hear more about in K-12, how it's really more community-based education. But I imagine if you think about continuing ed at, at the higher ed level, it is more engaging the community, there's more seniors there, there's more traditionally yeah. underserved adults beyond, who are over 25 who otherwise wouldn't have access to education, who you're providing access to. Really interesting stuff, Umrid. And uh, yeah, and folks, I think you've let them know where to go. So I think folks understand the evolution and it's, uh, it's how frequently does it come out? 
So we publish a new article every business day, okay. at least one new article every business day. Again, Got we it. don't have a writing staff at The Evolution. Everything yeah. that's contributed to us comes from leaders, uh, higher, edu higher education leaders, employers, government officials, mm -hmm. analysts from across the post-secondary space. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so definitely worth checking that out. Before we wrap up here, I always love to ask my guests, what other trends are you noticing? What other things are exciting your imagination these days? It's a crazy time where we're all drinking from the fire hose, but, uh, but do you have any, anything that's capturing your imagination these days? Anything you think uh, we should be on the lookout for? Yes. And I'm sorry, it's not goofy. It's higher ed related. That's fine. But I, I want folks to take a serious look at the idea of stackability hmm. and how it relates to, to, to the program set or to the portfolio of offerings at their institution. Mm -hmm. So stackability is the concept of basically how credentials can build upon each other to create more robust credentials over time. Mm -hmm. And everyone understands the idea of stackability, but what I want to raise a flag about is credentialing definitions, mm -hmm. right? Because I think a lot of people right now in our space are panicking and we're spinning out non-credit non -credit certificates left and right as yep. a way to basically generate short-term revenue because right now is really scary. Yeah. The problem here is that non-credit credentials aren't accredited, which gives you more flexibility to spin them out and offer them at points in time that make sense. But if they're not done with clear definitions around what the credentials mean, mm -hmm. over time, non-credit credentials start to lose value, mm -hmm. right? Because what you're doing is flooding the market with something that generated revenue in the short term, yeah. but didn't provide the long-term outcome or impact for that individual and thus cheapens the concept. Yeah. Every institution, every single provost needs to have a serious conversation with their continuing ed leader about what different kinds of non-credit credentials mean. Mm -hmm. So have a clear understanding at the institutional level of what a badge is, mm -hmm. of what a certificate is, of what a certification is, yeah. of what a diploma is, mm -hmm. and apply that to every single faculty at your institution. Mm -hmm. Because if you allow more and more non-credit credentials, micro-credentials that have no clear outcomes or values or meaning. If right. you allow more of these to hit the market unchecked, mm -hmm. we really diminish the capacity for, for higher education in general to be flexible and responsive to student needs at points mm -hmm. in time when they need them. Yeah. Yeah. And do you expect the governing bodies to get involved as well around this? Oh, topic? one could hope. Yeah. Accrediting bodies have been incredibly slow to respond to this stuff. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, according to Strata, some 66% of, of Americans right now are looking at, specifically looking at non-degree education opportunities yeah. to get themselves into the labor market. Where, when you look at the growth of boot camps, when you look at the growth of MOOCs, when you look yeah. at the growth of, of basically every non-traditional approach to education there yeah. is, right. that's when you start to realize that this is not so much a flash in the pan as, as really a, a new reality. And, yeah. and getting back to this idea of student centricity, mm -hmm. we have to be realistic about who's demanding what from whom. Yeah. And the post-secondary institution in its current state is not meeting market expectations. So yeah. folks are looking outside. But responding to that by offering increasing numbers of highly confusing and not necessarily rigorous programs is not yeah. the way to respond to it. And if anything, it puts us as an industry in a worse position to actually reply to it in the future. What yeah. we need to do is be very realistic, not just about the kinds of credentials we're offering, mm -hmm. but what they mean and how they might fit into broader pathways for folks to stack in future.
Yeah, that's really interesting. And we'll conclude with that. But I'll, but I'll also add a couple of pop culture references. It made me think of badges. We don't need no stinking badges. And it did make me think of the old newspaper line. I wouldn't wrap my fish in that particular newspaper. So I wouldn't wrap my fish in that low quality certificate. So <laughs> geez, I, I couldn't help but, but gravitate to some pop culture just to make it entertaining. Umrit Ulawalia, thank you for joining us, the managing editor of The Evolution. Thanks for your time. Very much appreciate it. And uh, for our listeners, thanks as always for listening. This is Trending in Education. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend, write a review, share us, love us. We'll be back again soon. Thanks as always for listening. <laughs>